0: Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason-Entriago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event, led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington DC. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the US Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC, and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode.
1: Welcome to another episode of the ADCG National Privacy Podcast. This is Jody Westby. And I'm here with my co-host, Jerry Buckley, founder and partner of Buckley LLP Law Firm. Our guest today is India McKinney, Director of Federal Affairs for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, known as EFF. Prior to joining EFF, India spent over 10 years in DC as a legislative staffer to three members of Congress from California. India's passion has always been for good public policy. And she's excited to be using skills developed during those legislative years and battles to fight now for consumer privacy and for robust surveillance oversight. One of our goals with the series is to bring forth the diverse views on the national privacy legislation. So we're excited to have India with us today because although we've heard from a number of experts in our series, We haven't had anyone on the program who represents the views of the consumer and citizen, which is so important. So India, let me start off by first thanking you for being with us today and then asking you, have we entered a new era where the consumer or individual citizen is getting listened to more than in the past or where their views matter more than in previous privacy discussions?
2: Hi, well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm looking forward to having this discussion with you. So in answer to your question, I think we have both for some important policy reasons, but then also just because of the way social media amplification can work. The way that the internet has evolved makes it a lot easier for individual people, as opposed to corporations or celebrities or famous athletes or just famous people. Can have a platform where they can say what they think and they can be heard by a wide variety of people. You know, there's just a lot out there of ways that you can say what you think and be heard by both the public and your elected officials. You don't just have to write a letter to your member of Congress, though. Interested people definitely should keep doing that. You don't just have to show up to town hall meetings, though. Again, interested people should still keep doing that. There's a lot of ways where people can say what they think and be heard.
1: Well, that is good to hear. I mean, I, I feel the same way. I think the consumer really does have a larger voice. And now my dog is going to bark, so I'm going to turn this over to Jerry.
3: <laughs> Thank you, Jody And uh, India, it, it's terrific to have you with us today. You're out in California. And before we started the podcast, we talked a little bit about, I was born in California. And you're in San Francisco City, where I was born. And it's really great out there. And But California, as we all know, is uh, taking the lead on privacy, as it does in many other areas, having en- enacted the CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act, and now through referendum, having adopted the California Privacy Rights Act, or CPRA. And it's spurring other states to do their own thing, some of them copycats, some of them branching off and doing things differently. And it's expected that that is going to continue. So that means there are going to be a multiplicity of state laws varying. We don't know how much. And then we have the GDPR in the uh, European Union, which affects the operations of businesses in the United States. You have the European, uh, the, the Court of Justice of the European Union invalidating the U.S. privacy shield and creating very interesting questions about the localization of data. So there are a lot of forces at work, and they've been at work just in the recent time. Things are accelerating in terms of variety of privacy issues and standards. Do you think that the time might have come now for another try at that uh, shibboleth that Holy grail of national privacy legislation?
2: I think it's past time for national privacy legislation. So let me be incredibly clear. I think it is also fantastic that individual states are moving on their own to create a privacy legislation in the individual states. So far, we haven't seen anything that really conflicts with each other. So there's not conflicting legislation. There's not opposite legislation. And it's really giving the federal government a lot to work with in terms of looking at the states as laboratories for democracy for what is happening with national privacy legislation so i know that the federal government has been talking about this for a number of years and what's been really great about having that conversation at the federal government level is having the states move forward you know cuz at the beginning we were In D.C., we were talking to lawmakers who were telling us they were hearing from companies and corporations that having national privacy legislation would be bad for their companies, would be bad for the economy, would be bad for jobs, would just be bad, 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 bad. And then California, which is very proud that it is either the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, depending on what year you're talking about, passed the CCPA and the bottom did not fall out of the economy in California. Everything is still fine in California, or at least it was pre-COVID. And the companies are still making plenty of money. And so a lot of those arguments about how you can't have business, you can't have jobs, you can't have an economy while also protecting people's privacy has just been proven to be totally ridiculous arguments. We absolutely can and should have national privacy legislation.
3: Well, that's the a point of view that I think a lot of people share. The the devil will be in the details, but uh, <laughs> as you well know, having spent 10 years in Washington, but returning to California, which is the, what uh, we've been talking about. We had a guest from California as one of our earlier podcast episode guests. Her name is Caitlin Azro, and she's from San Francisco, from the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, and, uh, I Maybe you two will have a chance to meet if you haven't already. She's quite an impressive person and a very thoughtful person, I think. And she wrote a report on privacy, which is not endorsed by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, but published by them. And she worked for them. And she concluded that the consent regime is really not very effective in protecting consumers' privacy rights or helping them control their own data. And so I wonder, what is your view? I can guess. But what is your view on the consent regime and how effective it's been? And does it have staying power as we're headed into into the future?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. And consent regimes are one of those things that sounds really good when you're writing legislation. And then when it actually goes into effect, you realize that it may not have quite the impact that you wanted it to for a variety of reasons. For example, one of the things that we're seeing in the realm of student privacy is both in public schools K through 12 schools plus higher education plus you know those certifying exams the bar exam the SAT PSAT stuff the standardized test things students are required In many cases, to download specific software that is mandated by the school or the governing body. And the software is privacy invasive. It will check your keystrokes. It will look at your face to see how often your eyes stray away from the screen. It will monitor the background noise in the room that you're in to make sure nobody's whispering answers to you, stuff like that. And for a lot of students, these programs are invasive, if you're any sort of disadvantaged situation, if you don't have a quiet private place to take those tests, like a lot of students, if you're sharing a room with siblings or parents who are working from home, or if you don't have reliable Wi-Fi and you're using public Wi-Fi somewhere, there's just a lot of problems with these individual programs. But in order to take the test, you have to opt in to all of these software contingencies, There's no way for you to say, I would like to take the bar exam, but I don't want to download this software. So, even though there's a consent based model around I'm consenting to let this software track my eyeballs and my keystrokes and my facial movements, it's not really consent because you don't have the ability to say no and not lose the benefit. And that's the thing that you really have to talk about when you're talking about a consent model. Can I say, no, you can't have my data, you can't? do the things that you want to do, and I still get to access the good or the service. And if that's not the case, then you haven't really consented to anything. It's still a coercive regime. It's a slightly separate issue, but we've also seen with the, at least in California and in some of the European countries, we've seen what we could either call dark patterns or suspicious design, where if you want to opt out You try to opt out, but I don't exactly know what button to click in order to opt out of my data. Is it already off and I'm turning it on? Is it on and I'm turning it off? Which way does it go? I'm trying to opt out, but companies are making it actually difficult for me to opt out. So there's a lot of flaws in the consent model system. And... It's also true that sometimes people fully, consciously, knowingly consent to the use of their data, but they don't actually understand what that means in terms of what else the data broker or the company or the software already knows about them. We saw a little bit of that with the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Like, it's fine if Facebook knows what kinds of potato chips that I like, but I don't necessarily realize that if they add that to all of the other things that they know about me, Facebook has an incredibly intimate view of me as a person, and they're trying to market things to me based on that data, which is a little bit creepy. And once you understand that, you might have a little bit of a different view about what type of information and what volume of information
1: you want to consent to turn over if you even can say no. You know, that's really fascinating because all the things you're bringing up show how complicated this has gotten. And it's not just opt-in, opt-out anymore. The software examples you gave and the discussion just highlighted that there are so many things swirling around now. I'm wondering, is there a driving issue that you can see that consumers and citizens are pushing hard for or that that would be their top of the list issue to drive a national privacy law from the consumer citizen perspective?
2: So I think that a robust privacy, national privacy law is not complete unless we have an equally robust private right of action. That is, unless individual consumers have the ability to Sue to hold companies accountable in court for a violation of their privacy or for a violation of the privacy law, I think the national privacy legislation is incomplete. You know, as any legislator knows, enforcement is really the thing that you have to talk about. You can have an absolutely perfect law in every respect, but if you don't have really robust enforcement mechanisms, you're just really hoping that, you know, it's the honor system. You're hoping that everybody just abides by the law because they feel like it. And You know, it's capitalism. It doesn't always happen like that. So businesses make different decisions. We've seen it before in other contexts. Businesses make different decisions when they know that they can be held accountable by all of their consumers and not just a state attorney general or the federal government. We need a strong, strong,
1: strong private right of action. That is uh, something that certainly California put at the uh, top of the list.
3: Do you envision the private right of action to be primarily through class action, since the cost for individuals is often uh, prohibitive to hire a lawyer. And I think we all recognize, I think the FTC has done a great job in this area, but as you know, you know, limited resources. So how do you think consumers will be able to exercise their private right of action, just taking it the next step as a practical matter? How is that going to happen?
2: So that's you know that's a great question. So the FTC has done a great job. They've limited power and they have limited resources as well. And some of the fines that they've handed down for some of the violations that have occurred. I don't remember exactly the violation, but one fine they levied against Facebook was 5 million with an M dollars and you know Facebook makes that in like an hour. It's wasn't a huge slap on the wrist there. So class action suits are a great way that things could be you know the consumers could actually Damages in court, but it's actually not about bringing the lawsuit. It's about who could bring the lawsuit. It's one watchdog as opposed to fifty million watchdogs. I mean, EFF is not the only impact litigation firm out there that is willing to represent clients, you know, who want to exercise their privacy rights. It's totally a matter of resources. Uh, when he was attorney general of the state of California, Javier Becerra was actually testifying in one of the Senate committees saying that as the state attorney general of a large state in California, he absolutely wants there to be a private right of action for any federal privacy law because as attorney general, he has a budget, he has staff, he's limited. And so when you turn over the enforcement ability to all of the different residents in the state, it just opens up so many more possibilities. So again, what that does is it's not necessarily about what happens in court, though that's obviously important, is the fact that companies could get brought to court. They're not playing a game with what resources does the California Attorney General have to bring this particular lawsuit. It's what resources does anybody have to bring a lawsuit.
3: I would just observe, though, I know you're not excluding the state attorneys general. I mean, there are a number of Areas where I have witnessed in the consumer financial services space, uh, where I practice a lot, for instance, on uh, mortgage servicing during the crisis, uh, the last crisis, uh, the state attorneys general coordinated across you know their jurisdictions and had a multi-jurisdictional challenge to certain behaviors, and those uh, they were quite effective in doing that, I think, and secured. Quite a large amount of money for remediation to be run through their states. With private right of action, do you think there would be some merit in having the state be the beneficiary or some other way? You know, most of us have gotten these little things in the mail, and you know you're entitled to uh, five dollars and eighty five cents because you're a member of a class, and you say, well, it's not worth my time to fill it out. A lot of people feel like there is, you know, the class action bar is attorneys who are getting a large contingent fee, but not the individual beneficiary. Now, it does have the effect, I think you're you're right, it has the, the effect of raising, uh, well, uh, we might get sued by a class action lawyer who putting aside whether the consumer is benefiting. It's almost like a private attorney general. But it is a question of, Where should the benefit go? And the power of of a multi-jurisdictional attorney general effort, uh, which is totally generating money for the public, is an interesting, uh, maybe I'm not going to try to sort it through here. I think that there are great advocacy groups that would step forward like your own. But how you thread this needle and achieve the best public policy outcome is something I'm still scratching my head about.
2: So the best outcome, I mean, I totally hear what you're saying in terms of money and funding and all of that. And from a business standpoint, they may be thinking of it in terms of dollars and bottom line and all of that. But from an advocacy standpoint, from a public policy standpoint, from a consumer advocacy standpoint, the best outcome for us is a change in behavior from the corporations actually taking steps to be more privacy protective of their consumers and to think about how they could operate their businesses in a way that allows consumers to maintain some of their privacy. That's actually the outcome that we want, mm-hmm. No giant settlement for all of the individual people. I mean, EFF is, you know, donation funded, grassroots funded, and that's how we operate all of our stuff. And it's great if we get a settlement for something like that, but that's not our source of funding, that's not how we get paid, and that's not actually what we want. What we want is a change in behavior.
3: I don't know that we can sort it out in this episode of the podcast, but it seems to me, in light of what you're saying about motivations for public policy-oriented organizations like your own, there may be some way to sort through that and avoid the some of the more deleterious aspects viewed by the medical profession and others as maybe driving up costs. Maybe you could achieve the objective you're talking about through some kind of a compromise. I, I don't know. Not, not to be decided here. Definitely
2: so. not. And well, we're certainly not at the part where we're ready to compromise. We think that the private right of action is the best way to protect consumers, and that's our
3: story, and we're sticking with it. I understand. I understand. But the question is, how is it defined?
1: Well, I'm thinking about the recent podcast we had with Jamie Danker where we tossed around whether the Privacy Act of 1974, which only applies to the federal government, might be a starting point for federal legislation, for federal privacy legislation. It is based on the Fair Information Privacy Principles, and it has a private right of action. I understand you're wanting to use private right of action as a force to cause change in the market. Would the Privacy Act of 1974 be a possible starting point to look at for federal legislation.
2: So the fun thing about legislation is when it's done well it really has a great deal of staying power going forward. And so one example I like to use is the 1934 Telecommunications Act which was written long before the internet or cell phones or Wi-Fi or any of those things still in many cases still applies to the way that phones and, in some cases, internet services are handed down. It's still applicable because it was a solid piece of legislation that is still an incredibly important thing that we continue to talk about. I don't think that it would be the best idea to confine ourselves to starting with the 1974 Privacy Act just because we want to make sure that what we're starting from right now has the same sort of staying power moving forward. We have no idea what the internet is gonna look like in 10 years. The internet now looks incredibly different than it did 10 years ago, and that's great. That's incredibly good. So we want to use the CCPA and the Vermont privacy law and the Illinois privacy law, and maybe even the Virginia privacy law that was recently passed as laboratories to see what, you know, talking about the consent opt-in, opt-out, just consent regimes work. Use the things that are already passing in states to see what works and what doesn't and tweak it. And so really start, not really starting from scratch, but take the things that have worked in other concepts and build from there so that we have a new federal privacy law that is uniquely American, uniquely federal, and that we know is going to work for a long time.
1: Give our listeners one or two examples of those state laws. Like I know you're discussing the Illinois biometric law when we chatted earlier this week.
2: So the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, we call it BIPA, is a very strong privacy law that says any company that wants to use a person's biometric information, which includes face scans, fingerprints, facial recognition, stuff like that has to have express consent from the individual for the purpose it's going to be used. And there's a very strong private right of action that goes along with that legislation. So once that law went into effect, Facebook, who has a, you know, if you've used Facebook and you've uploaded a photo, they have a feature where they offer to automatically tag people that they have identified in the photo that you've uploaded. So a bunch of citizens alleged that this tool from Facebook is a violation of BIPA because they, Facebook did not get the express consent of all of the people in the photo to scan their faces or identify their faces in the photograph in Illinois before being, before doing it. And so they brought Facebook to court. And they went through several different procedural stages. And I'm not 100%, but I believe that Facebook is either in the process of settling or has settled that lawsuit with the people who brought it. So that's a great example of a thing, of a piece of legislation that is working in the way that it's intending to actually hold corporations accountable for the actions that they're doing.
1: But um, you also, in mentioning all of these state laws and the private rights of action in them, highlighted just added complexity at the at the state level with these different laws, which makes me look at the word preemption, Jerry.
3: Well, yeah. So as we've identified, and, and certainly India is very clearly aware of this because she's very close to everything in privacy, uh, the second issue that has uh, so far been a stumbling block to national legislation is the preemption issue. And and you said very clearly earlier in our, in our discussion and you've indicated now, you think that there ought to be some ability to experiment at the state level and find out what works and what doesn't work. and And so, again, this is an issue that is perhaps going to be uh, a hurdle for the adoption of national legislation. Again, you know, an area where maybe uh, some compromise can be worked out. We had a discussion uh, with David Cotney uh, a few weeks ago who is the former banking Commissioner of Massachusetts, and he referenced the experience with the FCRA, where there is an ability on the state side to enact further uh, protections, but because the statute proved to be so effective, uh, at least at that point it was viewed as effective, uh, there hasn't been much done at the state level in that regard. So I, I guess I'm asking... Do you see any path to resolving this preemption impasse or not?
2: Yeah, so a great thing to look at if you're talking about preemption is the federal medical privacy law, HIPAA, Health Information Privacy Protection Act. So there is a federal government HIPAA law, and then states have also passed individual laws on top of the federal HIPAA law. So we often refer to HIPAA as being a floor, not a ceiling of federal privacy legislation. And what's a great parallel to what I hope ends up happening with the consumer data privacy world is, you know, HIPAA has been around for a very long time. States have layered different protections on top of the federal standard, and both the medical system and the insurance system are still doing fine. They're still in business. They're still making plenty of money. They've figured out how to work within the various different state requirements. It has not been any sort of impediment to business at all. Now, of course, businesses are going to say they only want to deal with one law. It's a lot easier for them if they only know how to do the one thing. But the other thing that they may not say is the internet is not just a national entity. It is a global entity. So already businesses are working within legal regimes of multiple different countries, as well as you know, state jurisdictions and all sorts of stuff like that. They can figure this out. It's been done with HIPAA. And again, the states move a whole lot faster than the federal government does. The federal government is very considerate, is very careful, and it tends to move slowly when passing big landmark bills or changes to big landmark bills which is appropriate. We have a big country. We have a lot of people. We have a lot of very opinionated people. And that's fine. States have the ability to move a lot faster. They have the ability to change their mind a lot more. They have the ability to try things out. And if it ends up working at the state level, especially big states like Texas or California, then you have a pretty good idea of how that's going to actually end up working for the rest of the United States. So it's important I think, to make sure that if you do pass a national federal privacy law, that you continue to give states the ability to experiment. So we want to make sure that we preserve this floor, not a ceiling model so that we can continue to do that.
3: Again, that's going to be a matter for uh, discussion. And whether there will be any guardrails on the states in terms of what they can experiment on will be, I guess, one of the questions that will be addressed. But I, I hear you. Uh, and. Uh, And the states as a laboratory has always been part of our thinking as a country. You know, you mentioned HIPAA. And of course, there's the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act that has been one of the primary financial institutions privacy standards. So we have the health industry and the financial services industry both with some history in the area of, of privacy. And you know, I'm wondering, can we should we we do have these silos? Should we have a national privacy law that would cover all of the various players? And how do you see that working India?
2: So, I don't necessarily see a benefit to trying to put everything under one umbrella. The financial services sector and the medical information sector are already, highly regulated industries, there's been a lot of discussion about what those laws are and should be. And there's a lot of regulation and a lot of oversight already on those particular businesses. And I don't think it makes sense to complicate the consumer privacy discussion by trying to include and not break these existing regulations of these regulated industries to try to make a one-size-fits-all situation. Again, there's a lot of different complicated state laws and a lot of federal regulation, a lot of federal oversight. And getting a good consumer data privacy law that actually protects people in the way that we want it to is complicated enough without trying to bite off these two other massive chunks. So there may be reasons that we need to update HIPAA. There may be reasons that we need to update financial services regulations, and those discussions are happening parallel and separately, and I think that's completely fine. There are a lot of people who have spent a lot of time to truly understand the ins and outs of those particular regimes, and I don't really see any benefit to messing with that.
3: All right, so you you basically, we know we have the wicker bill and the Maria Cantwell's bill in the Commerce Committee, which covers a wide swath of industry, but you would probably leave to the Banking Committee or to the Health Committee in the Senate the uh, responsibility for privacy in the industries that they have oversight of.
2: Yes, they're sort of niche industries for a reason. And I know a lot of people who have spent their entire career learning the ins and outs of those particular policy regimes. And I have a lot of respect for those people and their knowledge. And I certainly want to borrow some of their knowledge when it comes to consumer data privacy separately. But I, again, I don't see a benefit to trying to make everything be the same because it's not the same. There are different needs that are happening in different places. And I think it's important to
1: recognize that not all data is the same. Thank you, India, very much. And Jerry, for... That great conversation. It's very clear that this was certainly a needed podcast bringing this consumer and citizen perspective to our listeners. And, India, you really have filled the plate. And thank you so much. You know, I was thinking about wrap-up comments. And we've moved from opt-in, opt-out, to private right of action. And then if you talk about preemption, we're no longer talking about just preempting a state breach notification law. There could be a wide range of different state laws on privacy. It's a question of all of them or some of them or parts of them. So this is certainly a discussion to continue, but please let us close with a big thank you for bringing all of this information to us today and sharing it with our listeners.
3: And let me add my thanks as well, India. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you.
2: Well, again, thanks so much for having me and thanks for having the conversation. I think this is a really important thing. And the more people who know about this and care about this, the faster we'll get it done.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on US National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website adcg.org where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, or via RSS so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out, too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode, where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.